Anyone else experience a battle in the morning before church? Picture this, the parents are rushing around, kids are barely moving, and then someone spills their milk all over the couch. In the chaos, there's crying and someone screams. I used to have a lot more of those moments. Anger is often my go-to emotion. There was a time in my life when I would wake up angry. I was sleep deprived and my kiddos, they were young and they were dependent, needing help with everything. I felt like the Incredible Hulk, always angry. I didn't know how to handle my anger. I'd release by punching a pillow, kicked a wall once, or I'd scream. But there's no satisfaction in any of that. To be honest, those things typically just made me more angry. Feeling angry often starts off with feeling powerful, but then every time if it turned into rage or control was lost, I felt defeated. Several years ago, I went through releasing prayer specifically to address the emotion of anger and Jesus showed up. I am so thankful that he did. Since then, I've studied anger and I'm now thankful for it. Anger has become an internal alarm and it tells me that something's just not quite right. Gotta figure out what is triggering that emotion. When is anger worth it? And what do you do with those legitimate feelings of anger and rage? Today is our final sermon in the series, Real Talk, Honest Prayer. Over the past couple of weeks, you've been encouraged to pray using the Psalms. I think we've been pretty clear that if you're looking for something to make you drowsy before you fall asleep, you don't pray the Psalms. This book is an emotional roller coaster. The Psalms have helped us to be honest with our emotions of doubt, sadness, fear, and today we'll tackle anger. The Psalms as we know it in the Bible took around a thousand years to write, sort, compile, and build into what we know it to be today. It's one of the only books of the Bible that is published on its own, and that makes it unique. But it's also unique because it's been said, while most of scripture speaks to us, the Psalms speaks for us. A Psalm is poetry and some are lyrics to a song. The Psalm that we're looking at today is Psalm 69. Go ahead and find it in your Bible. Now off the top, right under where it says Psalm 69, you'll see an instruction. The Psalm says that it is to be sung to the tune of lilies. Well, I'm not sure what that song melody sounds like, but a lily typically symbolizes purity. So keep that in mind as we work through this psalm. It was written by King David, and I'm so thankful that last week, Pastor Lucas helped us just hear the story of David's life. Now, the fact that David gave instructions about the musical accompaniment for this psalm also tells us it wasn't a private devotional entry. It was intended for God's people to sing back to him. Now I tell my teenage daughters that they shouldn't sing a song unless they know what the lyrics are actually saying. And that's how I want us to start today. I'll go through the words of the Psalm so we understand the meaning. I'll talk through the mood of the Psalm so you know what it feels like. And then finally, I'm gonna come back to you and ask you, do you want it? Is this Psalm one that you wanna pray? Psalm 69 is an imprecatory psalm. 
Pastor John did a thorough job of explaining the different categories of Psalms in the series that he did, Let the Light In, back in 2015. He specifically mentions this Psalm when he explains imprecatory Psalms. Now, Psalm 69 is divided into seven stanzas. Verses one through four are David's first plea to be rescued. Then verses five to 12, he describes what he's experiencing and why he wants to be rescued. 13 to 18 is again a plea for deliverance. 19 through to 21, he goes back to describing his painful experience. Now verses 22 to 29 are why this Psalm is an imprecatory Psalm. He desires divine judgment. 30 through 33 is a vow that he'll keep on praising. And then ending verses 34 to 36 is hope filled. It reflects his belief that deliverance is coming. Beginning with verse one, let's dive in and examine the actual words that he uses. Psalm 69 verse one, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. So picture someone in the water, their feet not touching the ground. They can't stand up. There's nothing to grip. Now that water is not clean. So they're actually in a swamp treading to stay afloat, but they're not making progress because they're exhausted. They're worn out. Their throat is parched. It's burning from dryness because they've been crying out to God, yelling, save me, help me, rescue me, deliver me. Psalm 69 verse three says, my eyes fail looking for my God, Lord, I can't see you. I'm looking, I'm expecting you to help, but how long is it gonna be like this? How long will you let me feel this way? It's too much. Maybe you can relate. Can you recall a time when you felt totally overwhelmed? I can. Five years ago, when my husband was diagnosed with cancer and the chemo treatment was every other week, I was working full time. We we're raising three kids under 10. And the only way that I was managing was with the help of my in-laws. And then she had a massive heart attack. And for months I traveled between two different hospitals. I felt like I was barely able to keep afloat. The writer of this Psalm isn't actually treading water in a swamp. That is helpful imagery. The real threat is not actually pounding waves of water. But the writer goes on to say that the pounding attack of enemies that is causing him to be overwhelmed. There are those who hate him without reason, he says. His enemies are forcing him to return back what he didn't take. Well, I can sort of relate to that too. In high school, I began a co-op placement at a bank. And in my naivety, I left my security card in a binder at the bank. And then another co-op student used it to gain access to their system and started stealing money. I hadn't committed the crime, but my security card said otherwise. And then the manager calls me into the office for questioning. And at first I was afraid, but then afterwards when I realized what happened, I was angry. Have you ever been unjustly accused? Likely you have. And you're starting to get a glimpse of how the writer of this Psalm was feeling. The writer admits he's not perfect. If you've read anything about King David, you would know he committed adultery and murder. 
Psalm 69, verses 5 through 6. You know my folly, O God. My guilt is not hidden from you. But Lord, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. See, his main concern is that those who follow his leadership, they might get disappointed or worse, get taken down too. So he's feeling protective of the people that God's entrusted him to lead. He knows that individual failing has corporate consequences. Our actions against God will impact those around us, no doubt. That's why unconfessed sin is dangerous. Now, it's believed that this particular psalm was written towards the end of David's life. So he would have already confessed. He would have brought in a sin offering for those things I previously mentioned. His enemies were not after him because of the wrongs he did. He's being oppressed, insulted, shunned, disgraced. His family, and it seems like fellow members of the community of faith, are all mocking him. So why is this happening? He writes, Psalm 69, 7, O God of Israel, I endure scorn for your sake. God, I am ridiculed because of you. The persecution he was experiencing was because of his commitment to God, and it wasn't because of his personal failings. Psalm 69, 9, for zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. zeal. I really like that word. It means passion, great energy, and enthusiasm. It's as if David is saying, Lord, I love you madly. My heart is on fire for you. I'm consumed with the love that I have for you, Lord. And that's why people think I'm foolish. Look at verse 12. Even those at the bar are making up little tunes and singing about him. He's a joke to others because of his zeal for the Lord. I've explained how David was feeling, and you may have related at first, but now as I explain why he's feeling this way, did you think, wow, that's exactly what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling? Well, the pious answer is yes, but the truthful answer, more likely no. Okay, let's come back to that. We live in a culture of relativism, do what feels good and whatever's right for you. If you want to go to church, that's fine for you. You know, most Canadians don't discriminate and they pride themselves in being open-minded and tolerant. Sure, there may be a joke about you going to church, but then you return to the safety of your home. For most of us, the persecution we face is trivial. However, there are millions of Christians around the world who face horrible persecution this psalm at this moment may resonate more for them. Verse 13 to 18 is a plea for deliverance again. So the writer keeps praying, hoping, waiting for God to show his favor. The imagery of someone in the water is used again, but this time he's not treading water. The water is deeper. It's intensified. He's drowning and he's grasping for breath. He feels like he'll be swallowed up. He feels like the end has come. And so in desperation, the cries for help come. Listen to how direct his words are. Psalm 69, 13. But I pray to you, O Lord, answer me. 
Verse 14, rescue me, deliver me. Verse 16, answer me, O Lord. Verse 17, answer me quickly. Verse 18, come near and rescue me, redeem me. Where do you turn to for help? When we feel the pressures in this life, for some, the response is to find something to distract us or to numb us from the pain. And for others, they look for sympathizers. David tried that. Psalm 69 verse 20 says, scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. Many in this world feel like there is just no one there for them. They feel hopelessly alone and isolated with their pain. Demi Lovato, she sang the song, Anyone. She sang so beautifully at the 2020 Grammys. But listen carefully to her plea. Nobody's listening to me. Nobody's listening. I talk to shooting stars, but they always get it wrong. I feel stupid when I pray, so why am I praying anyway? If nobody's listening, anyone, please send me anyone. Lord, is there anyone? I need someone. Oh, anyone, please send me anyone. I wish that Demi knew the truth that David knew when he wrote this psalm. When you pray, someone is absolutely listening. When you don't know the one that you're praying to, it can feel like it's falling on deaf ears. But David, he knew the one that he was turning to. See, twice in the Bible, David is called a man after God's own heart. And David knows God well. He read and he studied scripture and he spoke and listened to God. He appealed to what he knew to be true about God. Verse 13 says, In your unfailing love, O God, your sure salvation, Verse 16, your mercy is good according to the greatness of your compassion. David knew that God's loving devotion is pleasant and steadfast. It's abundant. When you know who God really is, you know he is trustworthy. And multiple times in the Bible, it says that he is listening. David knew that God is the one to go to in times of trouble with his feelings, and even with that feeling of anger. Now you may get angry because you're hungry, or maybe you're tired. Now usually it's because you just didn't get your own way. When you experience that, well, get food or take a nap, but you also need to learn to work through that some things are just out of your control. Now that's not what's happening here for David. When you get angry, is it over things that are worth getting angry about? Now we ought to get angry at the cruelty, at the injustice, at exploitation. Are you actually angry about what God is angry about? God is angry about evil, plain and simple. He hates sin. In Proverbs, it says God hates certain things. If you look at Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19, it says, He hates eyes that are arrogant, a tongue that lies, hands that murder the innocent, a heart that hatches evil plots, feet that race down a wicked track, a mouth that lies under oath. When it says that David is a man after God's own heart, at some level, 
David's suffering is vicarious, both for God and for God's people. And his writings show us that he was angry because he was angry about what God gets angry about. David feels like he's being blamed for all the things that people hold against God. Now, conversely, he's passionate too. He's passionate for what God loves. He has zeal for God's house. And we've seen zeal in scripture. Find your way over to John chapter two. We're gonna start at verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip of cords and he drove them all from the temple courts, both the sheep and the cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers. He overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here and stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The disciples remembered that phrase from this Psalm. John is quoting Psalm 69 verse nine. I had always assumed that when Jesus arrived there, he impulsively responded with anger. But this same snapshot is also told in the book of Mark. And so as I prepared for this talk, I came across Mark 11, 11 says Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. He took a night to contemplate his actions. It was calculated that Jesus went and overthrew the temples or the tables in the temple because the people had made God's place into a market. Wonder what Jesus did that entire night before these actions? Well, it certainly wouldn't have been out of his character for him to just spend the whole night talking to God. Since John quoted this Psalm in his book, we can make the connection that Jesus' conversation with God was about divine judgment. It's similar to what we read in Psalm 69 verses 22 to 28. Warning, this is gonna get uncomfortable. And just to be a little bit more dramatic, I'm gonna read from the Passion Translation. Psalm 69, 22, 28. Let their feasts turn to ashes. Let their peace and security become their downfall. Make them blind as bats groping in the dark. Let them be feeble, trembling continually. Pour out your fury on them all. Consume them with the fire of your anger. Burn down the walled palace where they live. Leave them homeless and desolate, for they come against the one you yourself have struck, and they scorn the pain of those you've pierced. Pile on them the guilt of their sins. Don't let them ever go free. Leave them out of your list of the living. Blot them out of your book of life. Never name them as your own. Are you tempted to stop listening to me? Ready to yell, wait, and you're supposed to be teaching us how to pray. I don't want to pray like this. I don't even want to read this. Well, you wouldn't be the only ones. There have been some who have tried to get this psalm removed from worship books. Again and again, I find there are things in the psalms that I don't resonate with. I don't often think in imagery. I'm not a poet. It would be easier to read through the psalms and pick and choose lines that we like, but... The challenge is this, all scripture is God breathed and it's useful. 
The Psalms are to be our prayer book. They were Jesus' prayers. Frankly, it doesn't matter if the Psalm resonates. Yes, we are to pray this, but don't stop listening now. The bigger question, I think, is why don't we feel like praying this? When we watch on TV that the poor are starving, and you flip a channel and you see that gluttons are overindulging, you listen to the news and hear story after story of rape and murder, abuse, even genocide, other injustices, it should be boiling up inside us. But instead, we've become desensitized. We often are complacent, I think, too tolerant. David, he was not a spiteful man. In 1 Samuel, you can read accounts of how he spared his enemy's life. And instead of working out the furious rage that he felt through acts of public spite, David worked those feelings through intense moments of prayer, honest prayer. It provided David with a context to express rather than repress negative feelings. David is really only asking God to act here in a way that is consistent with the judgment that he has against sin. He's calling down judgment on these individuals, not because they're his enemies primarily, but because they're God's enemies. And as Christians, we ought to cry, Spirit of God, would you work in me so that I love what you love and I hate what you hate? King David also wrote Psalm 139, verses 21 to 22. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not hate those who rise up against you? I hate them with the strongest hate. When I was a kid, I was told hate was a bad word. You shouldn't hate. And it's still true, hate is one of the ugliest and most dangerous of our emotions. And we're often embarrassed or fearful of feeling hatred, so we just don't admit that we feel it. But what if you allow yourself to be honest with that emotion? There are terrible violations against life in this world, and hatred for the evil in this world is the first sign that you care. What next, though? I can easily become a person shouting, it's not fair. When I see the poverty and the homelessness of kids in Uganda, the sexual exploitation of minors in India, and the persecution that our partners in Bangladesh face because of their faith, I can get all consumed and in being involved. And side note, we should engage in mission. But those actions, they don't appease the anger that we feel at the evil that's at the root that is causing it all. Now there should be a flashing sign going off, also reminding us God's hatred is not like ours. It contains no element of spite, no pettiness or hypocrisy. It's the reaction of an altogether holy, loving God to sin. His anger is his loving and holy hostility to evil. Now, the more that I have read the Psalms, I've come to decide the psalmists are angry people. They felt hate and they didn't suppress it. They knew that our hate needs to be prayed. If our anger and our hate stays within us, we'll take it out on others and we'll turn it into vengeance. And that is not our place. Vengeance is the Lord's. So what do we do with the anger and the hate? We must go this way, 
never this way. There are times when we need to say things to people that we just can't say, things that would be better left unsaid, but which from our point of view, they need to be spoken. Well, David found in prayer that he could just cast his cares on the Lord. And once we take these strong emotions to him, we leave it. It's an act of profound faith to entrust one's most precious hates to God, knowing that they're gonna be taken seriously. I wonder if Ananias in the book of Acts ever prayed Psalm 69 on behalf of the followers of Jesus. The disciples were persecuted. Stephen was stoned while Saul looked on. We know that the disciples knew Psalm 69. It's the second most quoted Psalm in all of the New Testament. Now they may have wanted God's consuming fury to just come down on Saul, but hate must ignite prayer. prayer. It's gotta cause us to pray because then when we get in God's presence, he changes us. His spirit softens the heart to compassion and then love begins to fuel our actions. And while in God's presence, Ananias was told, go find Saul. You can read that full account in Acts 9. So my assumption is that in that moment, Jesus Christ's words just filled Ananias' mind. Matthew 5, 44, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now I believe Ananias, he prayed for Saul's salvation the entire way as he traveled to meet him. So Saul, who was the enemy of God, became Paul, the writer of over half of the New Testament. Praying for the salvation of our enemies may very well be the most powerful weapon we can wield against the darkness of this world. And who are our real enemies? I can't emphasize this enough. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. We are to pick up the sword against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So the curses of the Psalms are wrongly used if they're applied to a person. We can, however, cry out to God for him to pour out his wrath on Satan. Prayers like Psalm 69, they show us how to engage in spiritual warfare. The evil in this world, in our flesh, and in the devil, that's our real enemies. Now God, in his mercy, knew that this battle was too great for us. And so because he is love, he sent his son Jesus, and he gave his life, which qualified because of his innocence as an atonement for all of our evils. He died and he rose from the dead. And that action is what took away Satan's power over those who believe. It is our salvation. The final destruction of Satan, it is still to come. And praying a Psalm like this is an agreement to say, I want Christ to come again. Now the final two stanzas of Psalm 69 reassure us that David experienced a transformation while he was in the presence of God. More is at work than simply a change in his mood. He spoke his open and honest words of anger and hate to God and God healed the pain. And I suggest 
He transformed those passionate emotions to zeal, same intense energy, but redirected. Psalm 6930, then I will praise God's name with singing and I will honor him with thanksgiving. Skip down three verses. For the Lord hears the cries of the needy. He does not despise his imprisoned people. He hears our cries and he cries with us. I agree with John Burke who wrote, the evils done to you were not God's will. None of this suffering and pain is ultimately God's will. All that God did through Jesus made a way for us to reconnect to the one who cares, who has compassion, who experiences our suffering and wants to carry us through to make it count. In Romans 15, Paul quotes this exact Psalm to draw the connection between the suffering written about here and the suffering experienced by Jesus. Paul reassures us this Psalm was relevant. Romans 15 verses three and four, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. David's psalm turns into words of hope as he individually praises God and then he moves quickly to invite the entire cosmos to join in praising God. Verse 34, it says, Praise him, O heaven and earth, the seas and all that move in them. Praising with a psalm like this, it unites us with others. We're eternally then connected to every other believer. It moves us to think beyond our own needs and our own wants, and then it stirs us to just cry out against injustice. But it also humbles us to see ourselves as equal with everyone. Not greater, but all of us are desperately in need of salvation. And so Psalm 69 verse 35, for God will save Zion. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. But I also learned this week that Zion means parched place. Remember at the beginning of this Psalm, the writer said his throat was parched from crying out to God for help. You know, there will be one day, no more need to continue to have dry throats because we don't need to cry out for help anymore because the writer says here, for God will save. That word for, it means certainly, since, indeed. He is reflecting on the assurance of salvation that God's people, those who obey and love him, will live in safety. That's powerful. It's beautiful when the most desperate prayers will end in doxology. Okay, we've worked our way through the entire psalm and it's time for you to evaluate. Do you pray like this, real and honest? And can you pray this psalm? My husband likes movies. I like movies too, but when I say he likes movies, he really likes movies. He enjoys the whole experience of going to the theater. And during this pandemic, I think that's the one thing that he's been missing the most. So when we watch a movie, he is particularly interested in, so say like Star Wars or a comic book movie, he gets irritated when someone talks through an intense scene, if I look at my phone, and especially if I fall asleep. Now there was a new movie that just came out from one of those series recently. 
And it got to the point where quite often he was either showing me a new teaser trailer or he was talking to me about some article he had read. Finally, I blurted out, you are obsessed. And he retorted, well, what else have I got going on? Well, we laughed in that moment. And later on, we discussed the line from this Psalm. Zeal for your house consumes me. You know, we can get obsessed. We can get consumed with so many different things a movie or phones, video game, your work, maybe a specific relationship? Well, what's been consuming you lately? Could you pray, Lord, zeal for your house consumes me. For the people of God in the Old Testament, the temple, God's house in Jerusalem, was the place where God's glory could be found. But the glory of God was supremely revealed in Jesus. Jesus is the new temple. Further, the amazing truth is that God's glory also dwells in all of the people who are trusting in Jesus, both individually and together. Followers of Jesus are seen as God's temple in whom the Spirit dwells. It says that we're being built together to become a dwelling in which God's Spirit lives. Do you feel a zeal, a passion for God's glory? his presence, and for his family? Are you in a connect group and is it a priority to you? If you haven't committed your life to him, but now you want to, simply invite him in. Just say, come in. Now let us know that you did that because we want to come alongside you. You know, as we come up to Easter, you're going to be invited to think more about the cross of Christ. See, what Jesus did for you, it needs to impact your every conversation, your activities, every decision you make. You need to stop living as if the devil still controls you because God can redirect the things that have been consuming you. Just ask him to transform your anger to zeal, your hate to love, and to bring you closer to the Lord, closer to God, to being able to say to him, God, zeal for your house consumes me. Now you may not have experienced persecution personally, but your brothers and sisters around the world do, and you may, if you're willing to pray as this Psalm does. When Jesus was asked about his return in the final days, he replied, when these things begin to happen, watch out. You will be handed over to the local councils and beaten in the synagogues, you will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. For the good news must first be preached to all nations. We can pray a psalm like this, even though it doesn't currently resonate. Because we just have to think about those who need to know from us that an honest expression of their emotions, it does not keep them away from a relationship with a loving God. People who suffer the agony of abuse and undeserved pain, they need our empathy, not our judgment. God knows their pain. Jesus has experienced similar suffering. And if God stood in solidarity with the suffering of this world, how can we do less? Now, there may be others of you who reject the idea of praying altogether. I've met people who feel it's just evidence of weakness to pray because it stops people from relying on themselves and from feeling strong. You know, 
We can do without prayer if we insist upon it. God isn't gonna force you to cast your cares on him. But if you resist praying, actually, if you resist praying honestly, you're gonna miss out on the transformative power of the presence of God. Now, finally, for those of you who are actually passing through a period of emotional crisis right now, I suggest that this Psalm is of immense relevance. And Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. So it seems like it's an obvious point, but the, the starting point of answered prayer is actually asking. Well, I tell you that the strongest man, the most human being that has ever walked the face of the earth, he needed to pray. So picture Jesus kneeling in a garden, knowing he was about to give up his life for all of us. Of all mankind, this is the man we should have as our model. Expressing our pain to God is good therapy and good theology. When you are facing a crisis, prayer should no longer be a religious formality or a childhood habit. That's when you engage with God in real talk and it becomes honest prayer.